Hey, I'm Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy and host of the Armed and Ready podcast. Please come and check out this exciting episode we have for you. Hi, and welcome to the Armed and Ready podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood. Today, we have an awesome guest with us, Kevin Welch. Kevin is actually the brother of uh, our producer on on this show, uh, Dylan, uh, who runs uh, Dylan Welch Media. So um, we're super honored to have you here, Kevin. Um, It's cool to have some family on here, and you have a really interesting service background. So um, I want to just dig into it a little bit. You know, um, for our guest, you know, Kevin is a doctor. Um, He served in the Peace Corps, um, and you know, he's, he's worked in some capacities and coming right into COVID that has lent some really cool experience and some good life lessons. So, um, Kevin, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. I know you're, you're crazy busy, um, but we really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So, you know, I've always wondered, you know, from a service mentality, a lot of times, you know, on, on this show, we talk about the military, right? And, and everyone's service and the various armed forces. And you actually served in the Peace Corps. Um, which is a little different dynamic than what we've had on the show. So I was wondering if you could first just kind of tell us about the Peace Corps. Like, what is the Peace Corps? How did you find it? How did you decide to join? And and what's it all about? I can start off by saying everyone's Peace Corps experience is pretty different. Um, but I can, I'm happy to talk about mine. So um, really, the Peace Corps is a, it's a, a federal agency. It's it, places people who are qualified, uh, who are American citizens in, in different countries and um, working in different sectors like the uh, education sector, health, environment, um, in different areas of need. And obviously it's very different from military, um, especially, you know, our whole mission is different and we, we're not one of the uh, unified services of the United States, but we do have that federal backing of uh, the U.S. Um, and we do take an oath for, for our service as well. So there's some similarities, but you know, conceptually pretty different. Um, but it was a, a cool experience for me. I built it into my graduate school education um, where I did my practicum rotations in a small uh, southeastern country uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, Malawi. And a lot of people probably haven't even heard of it, but uh, maybe for The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, it's a popular book and movie. It, it takes place there. Um, so I... Uh, Basically, what I engineered, I guess, is a program where I was able to do my uh, elements for my degree uh, through the, the practical experience during the Peace Corps. And there's a bunch of benefits with that because I had a living stipend. I could get some really cool hands-on global health experience, fill in an area of need. And, you know, for me personally, get my grad school uh, requirements out of the way, or at least some of them. So that, you know, entailed getting like a a memorandum of understanding together with the feds uh, as well as with my university, but it worked out well and I was able to do some really interesting practicums. Um, Although it's not as uh, big these days as the COVID-19 pandemic, I was over there during the Ebola breakout and um, one of my practicums was working with the Ministry of Health of Malawi to figure out and plan for prevention and control measures for Ebola in the event that it crossed borders and, and came into Malawi. So working with the World Health Organization officials over there and um, a bunch of uh, the bureaucrats at, over at their government to kind of figure out, you know, ports of entry, what to do if it occurs. Um, so that was able to be leveraged into my grad school program, which is pretty neat. Yeah. Now, have you been able to, I mean, since we've been in the, the COVID pandemic, have you been able to draw 
um, from your experience dealing with Ebola and at least kind of compare or contrast like what's happened in the U.S. with this pandemic compared to kind of what you experienced in, in um, with the Ebola stuff? Sure. Um, I mean, they're very different. They're very different diseases. You know, Ebola is a different virus, different transmission nodes than the coronavirus. Um, but some of the similarities were the early on, you know, the conditions back in like March, April, 2020, and, and even February and January, I, I first had my eyes on COVID um, in middle to late January before it even left China. Um, so seeing it coming was like a tidal wave almost. And, you know, there, there wasn't really anything you could do. But one of the, the big comparisons that I, I drew with this is just the paranoia of, um, you know, not really knowing if your neighbor's sick, if there's disease in your town, in your community, um, and just kind of the, the craziness that ensued as this kind of came upon us. So we are seeing that to a different extent in Malawi, where, you know, communities that were near borders would suddenly have rumors of an outbreak of Ebola. And, you know, it travels like wildfire just by word of mouth. Um, so just trying to kind of, you know, can convey that we don't think it's here and keep the peace essentially. Um, it's, it's, it really gave insight to how fragile society can be. And, you know, and, and knowing part of my education was history of medicine and, and knowing what occurred in the past, you know, the, the black plague um, or the black death, uh, the Julian plague, there's throughout history, there have just been so many pandemics that have destroyed civilizations and, it made me think about that and really appreciate what we have for, you know, here in the U.S. Um, and seeing how quickly things could fall apart is, you know, it came pretty close. And I, I think not everyone in the country realizes that um, COVID-19 could have been much worse um, if it was something that was as virulent as Ebola, uh, even though uh, different transmission modes, you know, if people that if the death rate was as high as Ebola, we would not be having this podcast right now. It would be much, it would be pretty bad. So we got lucky in that sense. And it's a lesson I think for, uh, for everyone now that it's really hit home in the U S and, you know, we've been dealing this with, with, with this for some time and uh, kind of the importance of, of really having measures in place. Yeah. Um, now I remember, you know, hearing a little bit of news about Ebola and stuff, but it wasn't, I guess, to scale, at least from a media perspective that the coronavirus has been. And I've only seen little bits and pieces and uneducated completely in the topic. But as you mentioned, you know, the death rate with Ebola was very high. Um, was, was there anything, I guess, was it maybe just not as prevalent in the U.S. during that time? Or were there measures that we took that helped keep it contained? Or what was kind of the difference? It just seems like the hysteria with coronavirus was pretty high. Um, whereas Ebola, Ebola didn't seem as high. Yeah, well, Ebola just didn't seem quite as amplified, at least in the, the media's perspective, from what, you know, the average person is, is seeing. Well, I, so I, I wasn't in the U.S. during Ebola, so I don't really know exactly what occurred here. But what's interesting to know, and, and I'm in upstate New York, um, there was there's more Ebola in closer to upstate New York than there was to me. In, in Malawi. So we didn't have any, you know, we weren't on the side of Africa. It was basically separated by a whole continent. It would be like as if there were some Ebola cases, you know, in, in Honduras, almost. It's, it's pretty far away and, and separated by international borders. But just the, 
of what could occur if it did move across borders and, and you know, making sure those borders were secured and ports of entry were being monitored. Um, that was, uh, so really you guys in the US were closer to uh, the danger than I was in that sense. Um, but it was more just like the logistical side and, and, and planning and, and thinking about what could occur if it did cross over. Um, whereas in the US, I presume you guys just kind of heard it from the media about some of the, you know, some of the nurses that would come back and be in hospitals in the, you know, in, in New York City, for example. Um, but so that said, um, <laughs> the the main thing that is kind of similar would be every country that is, you know, in the UN and ratified the UN, they have uh, protocols called the IHR International Health Protocols. And these are carried out, studied, monitored, tracked, and evaluated by the World Health Organization. And I know the WHO probably has a pretty bad rap in the US these days. Um, and a lot, our support had been at least temporarily uh, pulled from, from the WHO. Um, but the purpose of those IHR protocols are basically to make sure that every country that is in the UN is abiding by parameters to prevent and control um, infectious disease at within their borders um, to kind of prevent it from going crazy and becoming a worldwide pandemic like we've seen. Um, as you can tell, it didn't really work too well. Um, it's a very loaded statement to say it didn't work too well for COVID-19, but it's designed to at least slow down and to be able to put society in position where they can prepare themselves for, for what's coming, if that's the case, and to, to mitigate. Um, so yeah, I, I can't really speak to what occurred with the paranoia in the US if there was any for Ebola. Um, I'm just, what I'm seeing is from my experience of COVID-19 here in the US compared to the experience of, you know, the paranoia of Ebola, the potential for Ebola in Malawi. And from, from what I understand, there's even the general public in many of the, uh, some of these African countries are really less attuned in a way to COVID-19 just because of some of the, the major limitations with testing supplies and vaccines over there. There's not really anything able to be done. So it's, it's being monitored and tracked, but it's not as much of a concern potentially also because of demographic characteristics of those countries as well. Um, but yeah, interesting. It's very interesting to be able to compare them. And I don't think too many people have been in the same situations. And I have close friends that did go to ground zero for Ebola, where they were working closely with people who ended up dying from Ebola. Um, and, you know, they had to be so careful because all it takes is one tiny slip up and you're exposed to a very deadly disease. Whereas with COVID, you know, a lot of my friends have gotten it, um, family members have gotten it. Um, I've, I've had people, I know people have died from COVID, but it's, it's, it's different in the sense that it's not an absolute death sentence in a way. Um, not that Ebola always is, but you know, the outcomes are far worse. So, um, and in a way we're becoming accustomed to it in the US and, and honestly, there's, to speak to the silver lining of all this, we're kind of seeing some benefits um, in how our society can adapt and evolve. Um, cut depending on uh, pollution, for example, um, with you know more remote work. I like working from home, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think you know another silver lining piece has has been you know kind of corporate travel too. Um, so I think for for companies who were sending their people all over the country on airplanes to go for meetings and stuff, I think you know, a lot of that has shifted obviously because of the, the pandemic into, you know, more zoom meetings like this, but I think going forward, um, it's probably going to present 
it's probably going to become more of an option for companies, which will be a cost yeah. savings, right? And allow them to invest more in the company or in more personnel or whatever. And, you know, I can even attest to that. I was someone who had to travel every two to three weeks by plane across state lines for, for my, for my work. So, and that was, that was stopped right at the advent of, of, of coronavirus and, and a bit of a welcome break. And, um, you know, people, there's learning her, but we, you know, people have adapted, I think. So you, you graduated like right before the pandemic hit, right? And um, so tell us a little bit about that and how has that affected your career right after graduation? Since I came back from the Peace Corps, um, I've almost been working nonstop uh, for the same company. There was a, a year where I worked for uh, the New York State government through Health Research um, HRI, which is a small consulting firm. But I moved on to um, basically a different firm where we do external quality reviews of um, basically global health applications. So it, it, it may be Medicaid measurement, um, various different federal reporting requirements that we're looking into and studying trends. Um, so, you know, what one of the biggest changes is, you know, we're, we're seeing the implementation of a lot of the frameworks that we have for our processes being interfered with. And, you know, uh, another way to look at the public health sector is, you know, or just the general healthcare sector in general um, is the healthcare economy. So there was a lot of um, factors that were impacting uh, dollar amounts, essentially. So it's, it's not exactly exciting material, but um, to see these changes being impacted um, across the domain that I work in, in real time and, and just having so little control, but also seeing that it was coming to um, and not really being able to do anything about it is a shame because you know that it's tied to patient outcomes and, and the overall health of a population that you're trying to, to serve at least. So. Right. Right. So, so, I mean, speaking of service, kind of a good segue, talk to us a little bit about service and, you know, that, that decision-making process that kind of went into, you know, your, you're wanting to join the Peace Corps. And, and I know a lot of people go through, you know, when, when you have a big decision like that, you know, a service type thing on your heart um, and it's something weighing heavy in your mind, you know, what were some of the processes and things that you went through personally to, to, to get through it and kind of weigh options and what kind of advice would you share with people who are maybe in a similar position and they're considering doing something, you know, that could be pretty, pretty big, pretty impactful. The, there was a lot that went into that decision. Um, I had, at the time, I had graduated from um, a master's program, and I was working for Harvard University in Boston. And I wanted to figure out the next step, and I wanted to pursue graduate education higher, um, you know, maximize my potential, uh, either through more education, which, you know, almost in hindsight is crazy because I was so burned out from six years at that point, but, um, or else, you know, pursue novel means for a, a career that would have me on a continuous upward trajectory and i it, it came down to two decisions and and uh you know i applied to the air force biomedical science corps i'm sure you know you get people who always say oh i was i almost joined the military i actually was i went to MEPS and i was waiting for a waiver um for my vision and uh <laughs> During that time, I got into my grad school program, um, and I only really applied to, to that because of the interest in with my advisor, who liked the idea that I was interested in global health and putting together this doctor international program through the Peace Corps. 
Um, so while I was waiting for the waiver to, to come through, um, I basically just canceled my application uh, for that avenue and, and opted to go with um, going for more education and uh, the Peace Corps service, just because it, it seemed more aligned with more opportunities in the future. So it was kind of hedging my bets. And that's kind of been a, a theme that I've found has been running rampant in a way, <laughs> um, where I'm, I'm always calculating and almost overcalculating and thinking about all the possible outcomes and weighing those in my mind. And a lot of those calculations, it's based on unknown information. So to make a decision where, you know, I'm willing to pick up everything and leave behind my family, friends, dog, um, all my belongings and move to one of the poorest countries in the world that, you know, who knows what I would even be able to do at that point. I didn't have my, um, my uh, assignment figured out yet. I still had two months of training once I got into Malawi anyway. It was kind of, uh, you know, see what you can make of the situation. And, you know, it's, if it turns out for the best, then, you know, it's almost like a lotto ticket in a way. Um, not, the odds aren't that bad, but you know, it was, it was basically, if I can, if I can pull this off, it's, it's, it's really a, a monumental step forward in my career, which would open up so many doors. And I, I found that it has, and it's paid off. And that's, as for my advice to the lay person, uh, whether it's one of your listeners or, or anyone in general is, you know, account for your instinct, but also look at all of what could go great and what could go bad, um, study literature, but also, you know, make sure that whatever you're making your decisions off of, whether it's media or peer reviewed articles, you know, make sure there's not inherent bias to that, whether it's um, just, you know, the, like if it's political biases, if it's publication biases, some of them can be more subtle than others and just balancing all that information. Um, it, and it really takes a, um, a, a mindset of being able to critically analyze. And I credit being able to do that to, you know, some of my, my education and, and just upbringing. I was very lucky. Um, and I know not everyone has that opportunity and it's hard to make decisions that will pan out well in that case. And, and that's why, um, you know, I count myself as being very blessed in that sense, and especially with how I'm able to really leverage that information further um, and my, my training um, to really be able to study trends and forecasts and apply it across multiple, you know, multi-disciplines, basically. So, um, and we can talk more about what I've done in real estate as well, but I've kind of, it's helped me develop creative solutions for very complex problems and to see them through and track and monitor them. Um, so it's something that's a skill that really has to be honed uh, by the individual who's interested in pursuing uh, whatever their endeavor is. Um, but it's just time and energy. You got to spend it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. You got to invest a little bit in, in all of that thought, right? Because, you know, the outcomes can constrain such wide endpoints, right? So um, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about real estate. How did you get, um, how'd you get involved in real estate? I mean, you're fair, you're pretty young. So to be, you know, a real estate investor at a young age is on its own an accomplishment that, that stands, um, you know, aside from, you know, all your career stuff. Um, but tell us a little bit about that. How'd you get into to real estate? Um, well, thanks for thinking it's an accomplishment. Sometimes it's the bane of my existence. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
as being an investor can be. Yeah. Um, so it actually stems going back to, um, you know, the decision-making I was doing back when I was uh, finishing my master's program, when I was at that crossroads um, that I mentioned of taking a military route, going into more education or something else. Um, I was really put off by the level of anxiety I was having in a way of student loan debt and not making much money living in an expensive city. And that was what, it was part of my approach to uh, almost like an umbrella creative lifestyle solution. Um, and trademark that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but basically, you know, I was like, this is like student loans are miserable. Um, no one should have to pay so much money for an education. I, I think education should be a right. People should be entitled to information and that information can be used to better themselves because it's better society. Um, and the ex how expensive it is, is, is crazy. Um, and that's coming from someone who volunteered, not, not volunteered, but I, I went to one of the most expensive grad schools in the U.S. Um, for my master's. So I was looking into how can I figure out a way to use these processes and, you know, have a, make it a mutual beneficial situation for myself and for, you know, the school that I'm paying my tuition for, because obviously they need to get paid too. It's how they afford to hire good professors and all that. Um, but anyway, I, what I decided to, or what I realized or what I found out is something called the public service loan forgiveness option. Um, and public health is already in the domain of, of public service. So, sure. you know, and what that is, is, what public service loan forgiveness is if you have certain kinds of um, federally backed loans through the Department of Education, if you work for 120 payments, payment months in public service, you get the remainder of your student loan forgiven. And, um, you know, if you pay the minimum for those 120 months, and it can be pretty low, depending if you, you know, are able to keep your adjusted gross income down, for example, um, and you select um, basically income-based repayment, um, you can really cut off a lot of money at the tail end there um, and, and really save yourself quite a lot of money that's forgiven by the government and, and perfectly acceptable to the government. It's, you know, there's no um, big tax bill at the end. It's, it's cut and dry. Um, so that was kind of uh, step one that I put in, together in my mind. And step two was housing. So housing in Boston was so expensive and it was just, it was such a drain on my wallet. And what I realized is that with student loans, you know, you can use that to pay for your mortgage. It's not just for rent. It's, you know, you get your living expenses as well as tuition and it's optional to take out those living expenses, but, but a mortgage for yourself qualifies. And I'm like, well, you know, everyone always says a house, like your house is an investment. What does that mean really? And I looked into it more and Yes, it's an investment. It's not always the best investment, um, but it also has a dual function as a tool. So figuring out, you know, for housing, if you buy, figure out what you want to spend based on how much it's a tool and how much it's a potential investment, how long you want to have it and how long you want to, um, you know, what you can do with that tool in a way to, um, and how that tool kind of brings back dividends in addition to the dividends from holding real estate. Uh, I then, step three was creative financing for this. And I used an FHA loan, which is very low down payment um, for owner-occupied houses. And you can, you know, you can live in a, um, a multifamily house. So I was like, okay, well, this sounds very interesting. I can pay up to, I think it's like three, 
3.5% down and like a, a decent interest rate. You pay uh, PMI, which is, you know, uh, mortgage interest, but that's forgiven or it's removed from your monthly mortgage bill after um, it reaches either 17 or 18. Um, if you trust it or 20% automatically, depends. Um, there's a few factors with that, but I'm like, that's already cheaper than rent. And if I can have tenants in my, my, I can use my student loans, basically the, the, the living allow or the living expenses for the mortgage for my house that I live in. And I just happen to have tenants too. Well, that's going to even offset my mortgage expenses even more. Um, and you know, that I made sure that it, that all qualified because I'm, I'm thinking down the line, well, I can really make this work for me in a, more ways because not only am I going to be putting student loans into a mortgage payment, which is, you know, a better return than a rent payment in most cases. Yeah. Um, I'm also helping myself make some extra, you know, money being a landlord on the side too. And, you know, I'll, it's, I'll be neighborly with them and I'll get to know the people that I'm living next to as well. Um, but that's also going to be forgiven apparently with public service loan forgiveness 10 years down the line. So I'm like, this is, this is great. This is a loophole in a way. Um, but it's, it's, a, it works, it's allowed. And I guess identifying these types of loopholes is, is part of the, the creativity. And, you know, what's interesting is it has a bad name. Like people will be angry at politicians for figuring out a loophole with taxes or whatever. If it's a loophole, then it's just a benefit in a way. And they were smart enough or they hired someone who was smart enough to detect it, make sure it was allowable. If it's not allowable, it's against the law. And, you know, that always comes to the question of ethics and that's, that's a whole nother conversation, but, you know, it's figuring out these loopholes and especially if they don't really hurt anyone, um, you know, arguably student loan forgiveness is, you know, hurting people because it's coming from tax dollars. But in a way, I, I think because it's public service, you're giving back quite a lot to, um, to the, you know, to society as it is. So that's, in a way, a, a tax that you're collecting on society. So it was justified in my eyes, ethically, um, and it was allowed by the rule books. So I had my first house on hand, and I was, you know, thrust into being a landlord in addition to working on grad school stuff and also working full time for my uh, my current role, which um, my current company. So I have quite a lot on my plate at this point, and. Yeah. You know, I want to still keep control of expenses. So um, instead of having to outsource some of the landlord duties, I watch YouTube videos and I figure out basically step four, how to DIY everything. (laughs) And (laughs) I've been shocked by, you know, I've gotten stuck my hand in electrical boxes like an idiot. Um, The the breaker was off, by the way. It was was, um, just, it was like static or something. Um, I've caused floods i've done probably tons of damage um to my own properties <laughs> in the midst of all of this but i learned how to do it myself and it's in a way it's like continuous education that medical doctors do but like life continuous education it, it keeps me figuring out how to solve unique problems that are you know that arise typically as emergencies and how to do it effectively um and cost-effectively as well as to the satisfaction of whoever, you know, the tenant or whatever. So that was kind of another learning experience. And I realized I like doing it. And 
now that I could potentially, I have some savings and, you know, I've been being careful spending. I'm starting to actually make good money. Um, I still haven't graduated yet, but I'm getting closer. I'm running my dissertation now. I'm, I'm back from the Peace Corps. Um, and I'm like, I want to buy another property. So this time I buy a three unit, like a brownstone in the middle of the, the city here. And this is, um, you know, you could probably throw a baseball and, and hit Cuomo, uh, the New York state governor. Uh, it's Sounds tempting. Government. <laughs> a lot of people want to hit him with a baseball. So that's a, you know, it's a great metaphor there. <laughs> um, so, and that one has been, you know, uh, another, it's, it's just figuring out, you know, what's a worthwhile income generating stream that can be at least somewhat passively managed. And um, so now I found myself having a total of five units across two properties. And I'm in my like mid twenties, late twenties uh, at that point. And I'm like, oh, I'm setting something up, really setting something up here that I can thrive off of and keep growing. And, uh, you know, I'm making contacts in the industry and I'm getting people who, who see my dedication, both to public service, but also to was still more or less my hobby at this point, you know, real estate is a hobby like a, it's almost like art therapy in a way um doing these projects <laughs> and getting them done it's it's right. like it's chicken soup for the landlord's soul oh my god i'm probably gonna get hate for that comment but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know I, I i do and i continue to pride myself on giving good service to my tenants too um you know people's well-being are at stake and you're like really closely intimately involved with that and um so in a way, as maybe it's because I'm relatively idealist, you know, I'd give them the red carpet service, but they would stay and they would, I would have almost no, I would never have vacancy gaps. People love to live in my apartments. My tenants were so happy and that was really rewarding. And also it was good for business. And uh, a phrase that my brother can probably share with you is, you know, or you've heard it yourself, I'm sure good business begets good business. Um, and that's, yeah. that's so true. And I was really seeing that. And at that point, I'm like, you know, this is becoming less of a hobby and really like, there's a lot here to this. And I'm living in this like little tiny upstate New York city. I kind of have like a sleeper niche in a way because the state government's here and, and, you know, the, there's universities, we have state university of New York at Albany, we have RPI, we have Siena. Um, the capital region is in a way like a, a gateway to uh, really nice places in, in, in and of itself, but also to the Adirondacks, to Boston, Chicago's not far in Montreal, uh, and New York City's only a short train ride away too. So I'm like, this is, there's something here. And, and, you know, I grew up here, so you kind of are almost blinded in a way um, sometimes when you grow up somewhere and you want to escape. But I, I guess at that point, I'd come back. I had seen, seen some crazy stuff in the Peace Corps. And, you know, I had in my 20s, I traveled to over 80 countries. Um, I did an internship in my master's program in Ghana as well. So having lived in, in sub-Saharan Africa for like three years, I really saw a lot of potential. And I think some people don't always see that potential right away, especially younger people. Um, you know, you kind of have to go through, and, and I'm sure you've seen, you've seen some stuff in the military too. And it, 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 you appreciate things differently. You come back changed and how you leverage that change um, for your life moving forward can really pay dividends. And, and I was seeing that with kind of how things turned out. And, and a lot of it just had to deal with how I made those calculated decisions early on and balancing some of the unknowns and kind of rolling with punches as they occurred. So yeah, I continued to grow my portfolio from there. And um, you know, I'm now up to with 
basically the um, in, the appreciation to the pandemic in this area. The, my portfolio is worth well over a million um, and making me more money than my salary job at this point. And I've uh, starting in February, I've now outsourced my property management to a, a company to do all of the nitty gritty details, um, you know, with the, the fixing broken pipes and filling filling vacancies and dealing with tenant issues. So, it, you know, I've elevated myself within my own essentially small business to be um, at the executive level. And uh, I've also uh, filed uh, my LLC and I'm continuing to explore real estate opportunities. And, and now it's really just, it's it went from being a hobby to um, a, a semi-passive income stream to a passion um, and something that can be done manageably with the rest of my life. Um, I'm still working with the same company, like I said, and the fact that I'm balancing all of it somehow and managed to graduate and surviving this pandemic, this, the second you know major disease outbreak I've been somewhat intimately involved with, I guess, has been almost a miracle in and of itself. And, and what's been nice is I've been able to help people that I've been around and, and who rely on me um, and, you know, share my income, my, my insight when it's asked for and uh, hope, hope to help people, I guess, and, and help them grow and stay safe. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, and I love how you, you pursued the multifamily route. And I, I speak to a lot of young people, primarily military people, you know, looking to buy a home. And it's a conversation point that I bring up a lot. And it's not for everybody, right? Some people doing the multifamily and having tenants and so forth is, is not the path for them. Um, but I love that you went down that path because I personally believe, especially when you're young and you don't have family needs of, you know, lots of bedrooms for children and all this stuff, you know, um, with a family, that it's really a huge opportunity to grow a real estate portfolio that's going to totally take care of you down the road, right? As you're witnessing now, you know, passively, you're making more than your job income, which is the dream, right? Is how can you passively have income coming into you um, without having to clock in and out every day, nine to five for it? And um, GameStop, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's one way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's, that's a huge opportunity. And, you know, you fast forward and you're very calculated in the way that you think, but you fast forward to, you know, when you're 50 years old, and these homes are paid off or nearly paid off, you know, you've got two incredible benefits facing you now if you held on to them that long, which is the appreciation gain and the amount of equity in those homes, which if they're almost paid off is going to be rather large 30 years from now, and the amount of income that you've made over the course of that time. And eventually when that home is free and clear, you know, that's, that's all, that's all income less your, your operating expenses, right? So um, for a future vision on what that does for you on a retirement standpoint, it's, has a big impact, really big impact. You know, when I'm 50, I'll be probably, you know, one third of my life will have been over seeing as how I'm playing over a very long time. Um, <laughs> but as, it, it gives me more importantly means to keep growing and to build that portfolio even, even more. Um, the, the income that is pulled in from rent is, you know, it's higher than your mortgage payments you have to kind of figure out creative financing at each step as you add on each new property. Uh, Fannie and Sally don't really want to give you more than four mortgages, so it starts to get more complex. Um, but if you have a good relationship with a local lender, or and I've had bad relationships with local lenders, I've actually uh, I've litigated, filed a, a lawsuit against a lender who um, was 
engaged in shady activities and cause a, a sale to fall through. So you really have to do your due diligence here. And on top of that, you know, there are unknowns. Real estate is still an investment at the end of the day. At the end of the day, 50 years from now, there could not, you know, we don't know what the value is going to be for these houses. It's most likely going to go up because, you know, the population is just going to keep going up and there's only a limited amount of land that can be, you know, used for residential homes. Um, you make that assumption, but those assumptions can be, turn out to be untrue. I mean, take a look at what just happened with COVID-19. Everyone's world just got turned upside down um, in, in, in a lot of different ways. And I've been lucky, um, but you, you don't really know and you have to make some assumptions. And then when those assumptions change or the, the factors change, you kind of have to adapt and, and always, always being on in that regard and studying kind of just the environment, the influences. Um, but also really importantly is getting yourself set up and understanding how those, how, just like how multifamily rentals work and how you can make money and what different types of financing is available, whether it's FHA or conventional, what buying points means, what low interest rates mean, what capital gains tax is gonna, if that's gonna have a bearing. Um, how all of that interacts with a given price point that's that you're seeing in your current market. And, you know, if you have to wait to buy or if you need to buy everything you can at a certain time, be prepared to do that. And, you know, it's really your personal risk tolerance and being prepared to act based on confidence that you've done enough due diligence. So it's, it's, it all goes back to Kind of studying the material and and knowing um you know that there's unknowns and it's there's going to be risk and it's going to be hard but putting forth the energy and, and and the time to really understand a lot of these mechanisms and and just the context of it all yeah yeah i totally agree well kevin look man it's been a pleasure having you on the show really appreciate a lot of cool insight um for those who are are weighing any big you know decisions of um you know contributing to society in whatever form to real estate investing um, really picked up a lot from you today. And I hope our listeners really enjoyed it. Shared a lot of great information and I uh, just want to say thank you to you and, and thanks to your brother for getting you on the show and um, spending some time with us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Great. Great speaking with you guys. All right, man. Have a great day. Take care. You too. You too. Thanks. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode. If you have any questions about the guests on the show, please reach out to me at valoanguy.us.